E.B. White's book, Stuart Little, is about a boy who is not much more than two inches tall when he's born and looks very much like a mouse, as we're about to hear in this audio recording of the story. He had a mouse's sharp nose, a mouse's tail, a mouse's whiskers, and the pleasant, shy manner of a mouse. The book is, in many ways, a fantasy. But like any well-written fantasy, it doesn't let on. Just when you think E.B. White might explain what exactly is going on here, he seems to instead poke fun at our desire for easy interpretations. Before he was many days old, he was not only looking like a mouse, but acting like one, too, wearing a gray hat and carrying a small cane. After all, the book is not simply about a mouse boy. It's about much bigger things, as author Catherine Applegate tells us. Stuart Little is about growing up. It's about becoming a human being in the world. It's so profound that way. I cannot believe that everybody didn't get that at the time. It's so annoying to me that there were naysayers because to me, it's so perfectly calibrated. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. On today's show, we're gonna dive into Stuart Little, which was E.B. White's very first children's book, published in 1945. Newbery Medal-winning author Catherine Applegate loves Stuart Little and will offer her perspective. She wrote the classic sci-fi series Animorphs. Her latest book, Enling, The Last, deals with many of the same themes as Stuart Little, like growing up, adventure, and the wonder that nature inspires. We'll also hear from Newbery Honor author Catherine Lasky. She's written a new book called Tangled in Time, which involves time travel and a search for hope. Her work shares an element of the fantastical similar to Stuart Little and encourages kids to be open and imaginative in their lives. That's the whole point of fantasy. You're taken to a brink and you just wonder, could this actually happen? That's just, to me, the best thing that could happen with a kid reading a book of mine. So to begin, just how did E.B. White come up with Stuart Little in the first place? We went through some of his published letters and found one that he sent to his editor along with an unfinished copy of the manuscript. We had an actor read it for us. At the risk of seeming a very whimsical fellow indeed, I will have to break down and confess to you that Stuart Little appeared to me in dream, all complete, with his hat, his cane, and his brisk manner. Since he was the only fictional figure ever to honor and disturb my sleep, I was deeply touched and felt that I was not free to change him into a grasshopper or a wallaby. So he worked with what his dream gave him, a mouse, and he created the story of Stuart Little. Unlike most babies, Stuart could walk as soon as he was born. When he was a week old, he could climb lamps by shinning up the cord. Mrs. Little saw right away that the infant clothes she had provided were unsuitable, and she set to work and made him a fine little blue worsted suit with patch pockets in which he could keep his handkerchief, his money, and his keys. Every morning before Stuart dressed, Mrs. Little went into his room and weighed him on a small scale which was really meant for weighing letters. At birth, Stuart could have been sent by first-class mail for three cents. 
but his parents preferred to keep him rather than send him away. Stuart Little was one of the first books that author Catherine Lasky read on her own as a child. What struck her about Stuart Little was the scale and how the family worked to accommodate Stuart. For example, Mr. Little built him a bed out of clothespins and a cigarette box. I remember I had done that. It wasn't a cigarette box. It was some other kind of box. And I probably used popsicle sticks or something because they were a great part of my art arsenal <laughs> when I was a kid. But I remember I wanted to replicate that miniaturized world in some way. And it was the scale. I loved everything about how little he was and how the family had to adapt things so that he could, you know, use the bathroom. Lasky liked that Stewart's small stature in E.B. White's world is unremarkable, except for the logistical challenges, of course. In other words, there's a great acceptance around the small fellow. Nobody says, well, why are you a mouse or they're an inferior species or anything like that? He's accepted as something to be loved and not changed. Let him be who he is. And Lasky feels that all of the characters in the book are really rooting for Stuart. And they're not rooting for him because he's pathetic or anything. I think they see a human spirit in him or something that defies the species. As Stewart's creator, E.B. White had a lot of respect for him and demanded the same from readers. He didn't see him as just another cute, whimsical, talking animal character in a children's book. To him, Stewart was more human and equal. He even took measures to make sure ads reflected that too. When the first ads came out for the book, he wrote a letter to his editor. One or two of the Harper ads referred to Stuart as a mouse. This is inaccurate and probably better abandoned. Nowhere in the book, I think I am right about this, is Stuart described as a mouse. He is a small guy who looks very much like a mouse, but he obviously is not a mouse. He is a second son. But later in the letter, he comes to the realization that maybe even he sometimes thought of Stuart as a mouse. Uh, I am wrong. Stuart is called a mouse on page 36. I just found it. He should not have been. Turns out, even in the creator's mind, fact-checking fantasy is a slippery slope. In the book, Stuart lives in New York City. He's brave and curious, and he goes on adventures both at home and in his great big city. He shimmies down the drain to retrieve his mother's ring, and he mans a toy sailboat in a race in Central Park. For Catherine Applegate, it wasn't just the action that got her hooked. She found his writing extraordinary. Oh, it's just about perfect. It's so clean. He writes always with love, I think. But what I love about him is that he clears out all the debris and the only thing left is the absolutely perfect word. And that is such a hard thing to do. E.B. White beautifully captures the ordinary moments of growing up. By the middle of the book, he starts to turn more towards the world outside of his family and home. In chapter eight, a pretty little hen bird, brown with a streak of yellow on her breast, arrives at the Littles' home. Stuart is immediately taken with her. My name is Markelow, said the bird softly in a musical voice. 
I come from fields once tall with wheat, from pastures deep in fern and thistle. I come from vales of meadow sweet, uh -huh. and I love to whistle. Stuart sat bolt upright in bed. Say that again, he said. Margolow, the bird, stays with the littles for a while. And as the days passed, it seemed to Stuart that she grew more and more beautiful. He hoped she would never go away from him. But when spring comes, Margolow receives a message warning her about a strange cat who will come by night. She takes off without even saying goodbye. Stuart is heartbroken, and he decides that he's going to strike out into the world and find her. A dentist he knows gives him a tiny automobile, and Stuart just sets off. By halfway through, you're already sensing Margolow's there, and there's this, he's grown up, or he's growing up. And you can feel the tension there and the fact that he's going to go out into the world and take risks. And that's a very scary thing. But he does it with a certain panache and pulls it up. On his first stop in an unknown town, he encounters a superintendent desperate for a substitute teacher. Stuart right away volunteers. This is absolutely, bar none, the best paragraph or two in this book. Stuart is talking to the class about being the boss of the world, basically, chairman of the world. And he asks a kid named Henry Rackmeyer what is important. And Henry says, A shaft of sunlight at the end of a dark afternoon, a note in music, and the, the way the back of a baby's neck smells of its mother keeps it tidy, answered Henry. Correct, said Stuart. Those are the important things. You forgot one thing, though. Mary Bendix, what did Henry Rackmeyer forget? He forgot ice cream with chocolate sauce on it, said Mary quickly. Exactly, said Stuart. <laughs> and that's like, okay, that's why we live. That's what hope is. There you go. I don't need anything else, you know. I, that, that to me is as good as any religion. Stuart doesn't stay at the school long because somewhere out there, Margolow is still at large. After a couple more stops and adventures, he runs into a repairman for the telephone company. Applegate picks up the story from here and reads. Stuart is talking to a repairman, and it's right at the very end of the book. And the repairman asks which way he's going, and he says north. And he says, there's something about north, something that sets it apart from all other directions. A person who is heading north is not making any mistake, in my opinion. That's the way I look at it, said Stuart. I rather expect that from now on, I shall be traveling north until the end of my days. Worse things than that could happen to a person, said the repairman. Yes, I know, said Stuart. Following a broken telephone line north, I have come upon some wonderful places, continued the repairman. Swamps where cedars grow and turtles wait on logs, but not for anything in particular. Fields bordered by crooked fences broken by years of standing still. Orchards so old, they have forgotten where the farmhouse is. In the north, I have eaten my lunch in pastures rank with ferns and junipers, all under fair skies with a wind blowing. My business has taken me into spruce woods on winter nights where the snow lay deep and soft, a perfect place for a carnival of rabbits. Spoiler alert, 
the ending is quite sudden. After he chats with the repairman, Stuart basically rides off into the sunrise, not the sunset, in search of Margolo. And that's it. That's the end. We have no idea whether he ever finds her or ever returns home. White wrote the ending much later than the rest of the book, while he was actually quite sick. Here's another one of his letters. It's about writing the final part of the story. The last couple of chapters of Stuart Little were no dream. They were a nightmare. I wrote them doggedly and while under the impression that I was at death's door and should catch up on loose ends. Readers have really reacted to the ending over the years, including Applegate. It was such a jump off the precipice into nothing kind of ending. And I was, I was so mad that ambiguity just drove people crazy. And it is ambiguous. But to me, now reading it as a, an adult, I see how life-affirming and how perfect it was. He's stepping off into the world, but there's a confidence there. And he's heading north, by the way, so it'll be okay. <laughs> E.B. White received tons of notes from kids about the ending when the book came out. In this letter, he tried to explain himself. Stuart Little is the story of a quest or search. Much of life is questing and searching, and I was writing about that. If the book ends while the search is still going on, that's because I wanted it that way. As you grow older, you will realize that many of us in this world go through life looking for something that seems beautiful and good, often something we can't quite name. In Stuart's case, he was searching for the bird, Margalow who was his idea of beauty and goodness. Whether he ever found her or not, or whether he ever got home or not, is less important than the adventure itself. If the book made you cry, that's because you are aware of the sadness and richness of life's involvements and of the quest for beauty. Cheer up. Stuart may yet find his bird, he may even get home again. Meantime, he is headed in the right direction, as I am sure you are. E.B. White spent a lot of time in rural Maine at his farm and eventually moved there permanently. He liked to observe nature. He revered the world's subtle beauty and its creatures. That's something that Catherine Applegate shares with White. Her new series, Endling, is about a made-up being she calls a Dairn, whose name is Bix. After Bix's family is killed, she thinks she may be the very last of her species, otherwise known as an Endling. The catalyst for Endling was, interestingly enough, my daughter coming across the word on Reddit, I think it was. It has been relatively recently coined, so you still won't find it in most dictionaries. But unfortunately, we are finding we need it more and more, and the reason is because we're going through what a lot of people are calling the sixth great extinction. We're seeing mass extinction of all kinds of species. So the idea of an endling of the very last animal alive in a species was so compelling to me and poignant. And I thought, what would it be like to actually be that species? In the story, Bix hears a rumor that far from her home, there just might be another Darren colony. 
she decides to go look for her fellow Dairns to see if she could find her tribe in the face of extinction. During all of her various misadventures, she meets a ragtag crew of creatures who join her along the way. Now, as Bix grows, I suppose in the same way that Stuart grows, the same way any good children's character grows, she realizes that she can redefine family and that maybe it's not just about species and blood. Maybe it's about these creatures and humans that she's gathered around her that are willing to risk their lives for her. So her definition of what's important changes as she grows up. An epigraph in Applegate's first Endling book reads, In nature, nothing exists alone. The words were written by Rachel Carson in her book, Silent Spring. It's about the ecological dangers of pesticides, and the book catalyzed an environmental movement in the United States. When I looked at my copy of Silent Spring, I saw that Carson included an E.B. White quote as her epigraph. Did you know that Rachel Carson actually claims to have been inspired to write Silent Spring by none other than E.B. White? No, I did not know that. That is so cool. And it doesn't surprise me at all. (laughs) What a fascinating connection, though. I love it. See, that's the kind of writing he did, that he could take a spider, for example, a tiny mouse, and make you think about these big connections. And Applegate's books are helping kids do the same. When she talks about her book to students, she pulls up pictures of real endangered animals. Kids just stare at it. You could see the devastation on their faces. They're going, how is this possible? What can we do, you know? They care so deeply. And this is a hard one. I mean, the problem with species eradication is it's so complex that we're all overwhelmed. And because it's so complex, I think it's, it's easier to wrap your head around it sometimes with a story which is why I hope Enling helps do that. E.B. White once wrote that reality and fantasy make good bedfellows. That's something that all three authors, White, Applegate, and Lasky, have in common in their books. On the one hand, the characters are made-up beings, or perhaps real creatures doing unrealistic things. Sometimes it's both. On the other hand, they not only feel real, They feel grounded in their respective worlds and ours. Catherine Lasky says that's by design. You have to immerse yourself in that world that your characters are inhabiting. And having those characters be immersed and not just arbitrarily grafted on to an environment. You have to learn that environment. Lasky accomplishes this sense of immersion in her books through extensive research. She's the author of a series of books called Guardians of Gahul. It's about talking owls. E.B. White was a keen observer of nature in his beloved Maine, whereas Lasky's method is a little different. I don't like petting them or being too close to them. I just kind of rather read about them in books and watch David Attenborough. For her owl books, she spent a lot of time reading up on these unique animals. There's so many interesting things about owls and how they learn to fly. And they hop from branch to branch at first. They really haven't fledged their flight feathers. So they just do a little hop and then they build themselves up. And it reminded me of how I learned to swim, actually. When she was young, her swim instructor put her in the water and told her to push off the pool wall. 
Each time, she'd push out a little further into the water. Well, that's sort of exactly how owls do it. They just sort of push off from one branch to the next, and they see if they can get to a little more distant branch each time. And I just find that really interesting. So I found all these analogies with human development and behavior. So while Lasky doesn't like being around animals, she loves natural history. Animals kind of became a portal for me to just explore not only their world, but the whole world. That to me is the most enriching thing about writing is transporting yourself into another person's shoes or another species. Today, Lasky's Talking Owls, which are a portal to explore independence and friendship and bravery in the face of dark forces, are no big deal. But when White was trying to publish Stuart Little, some people balked at the idea of a mouse child, including Anne Carol Moore. She's basically credited with inventing the children's library. For years, she was in charge of the New York Public Library's kids department. Moore influenced which books made it into schools across the country. And it turns out she really disliked Stuart Little. Although she had encouraged White to write a children's book to begin with, when she got her hands on what he'd written, she announced that she had never been so disappointed in a book in her life. She thought that children would never be able to tell the difference between reality and fantasy in this book. She herself found it so unbelievable that she wrote White's publisher and his wife, Catherine White, who was an editor at the New Yorker magazine, trying to dissuade them from ever going through with it. Especially from today's vantage point, Lasky finds Moore's complaints about the book hard to believe. She just had such a narrow definition of what is believable. And to think that a librarian really closed down a book because she just thought it was unimaginable. It wasn't because there were dirty words. It wasn't because there was sexual stuff. It wasn't because there was hatred or prejudice. It was simply because she couldn't imagine. And I think that's so sad. When White was writing Stuart Little, he was very afraid of making something that would be cutesy or would inadvertently talk down to his readers. In 1939, his editor was hounding him to get it done. White wrote to his editor saying, I would rather wait a year than publish a bad children's book, as I have too much respect for children. Another six years passed before the book was finally published. Some schools even banned Stuart Little for a time. But the book has, of course, gone on to become a beloved classic. Lasky says that when she was a kid, she loved books like Stuart Little that engaged her imagination. That was what was so wonderful about my reading experience. I think I'd often ask my mom something like, do you think this could really happen? And she said, well, I don't know. Or she wouldn't, she'd never say, no, it can't happen. But it was sort of like this thing, well, maybe. There was always an implied maybe. Lasky's stretched imagination comes through in her new book. Tangled in Time, the portal, is about a girl whose mother dies in a car crash, forcing her to live with her grandmother in Indiana. In her grandmother's beautiful greenhouse, 
she begins to time travel to the court of King Henry VIII. Lasky says that she had some trouble figuring out how to write time travel in a way that made sense, but she didn't think her readers would ever have trouble imagining a world where that's possible. I hope somebody, when they read he or she reads my book, Tangled in Time, starts thinking about the possibility of a portal. I'd love to hear where kids would like to go and why. E.B. White's books are beloved by children and have influenced many, many children's book authors as well. Catherine Lasky wants to see the same basic principles that defined E.B. White's stories in Kid Lit of the Future. There's only about four or five themes altogether to write about in books for kids, as far as I can see. And the main one is about kids gathering strength. You start off in a weakened position, your character vulnerable, and somehow they wind up feeling stronger. They don't wind up being Superman or anything like that. But they've gained strength. And that's the adventure. I think if we stick to that kind of stuff and be inclusive, it'll be just wonderful. For Catherine Applegate, it was E.B. White's honesty with children that stuck with her. She sees more and more of it in kids' books today. She says the fact that he wrote honestly about hard issues encouraged her to do the same. Though it took her some time to allow herself to do that. When I first started writing, I was parental. I probably had a little bit of Anne Carol Moore in me, you know. It it took me a while to realize that, no, I couldn't write a good story unless I talked about the dark stuff, too, and the real stuff. And unless I really was honest, it's very hard to write that way. You have to write what's true or it doesn't sound right. It doesn't read right. And kids, more than anybody, won't buy it. And they'll tell you, too. They know. They are very honest critics, both in terms of knowing when something doesn't feel true to them and also when they love something. They'll tell you. White has been criticized for how dark and sad his books are. But he insisted books should take kids there. Applegate agrees. She no longer worries if a little darkness creeps into her stories. She says that's something that a lot of classic books actually have in common. They all go to dark and meaningful places without fear and expect their young readers to go with them and enjoy the ride. And that, I think, is key. It doesn't really matter what the content is as much as how it's presented. Perhaps White was ahead of his time. But Applegate sees books that are unafraid of the dark stuff as the future of Kidlet. I think we're touching on all kinds of issues at younger ages, but in a way that's palatable and acceptable and helpful. So I think that's a good thing, too. There isn't much off limits anymore in children's books. And that goes for picture books, too, which is really exciting. Ultimately, she says... That will make kinder, more empathetic adults out of the kids. They really are tuned into what's going on in the world. We can't seem to shelter them from it, no matter how we try. And they want to help. And that, I think, harnessing that energy is so vital. I've been really touched. Some of the books I've written have served as catalysts and all credit to teachers and librarians on this because they're so good about Helping kids connect with books and then taking action. She says that after reading her books, 
kids have gone on to do amazing things like raising money to save animals. E.B. White's books have probably saved countless pigs and mice, but their bigger lessons have been about openness and friendship and kindness and being good with a capital G. And Applegate says that ultimately, books that help kids feel empowered in the world will always stay relevant. Kids want to do something. They want to step out into the world and help change it. And that's why I think kids' fiction will continue to be valuable and to matter, perhaps far more in the long run than adult fiction, because you're getting these embryonic human beings who are going to be shaped by what they read and who will probably care about things more than they ever, ever will. So it's, it's really a, a privilege to write for them. Special thanks to Katherine Applegate and Katherine Lasky for joining us. You can find out more about their books at rememberreading.com. Also, the narration of Stuart Little you heard comes from Listening Library, an imprint of Penguin Random House. And thanks to Dan Freegee for reading E.B. White's letters. And hey, if you guys love the podcast, let us know on Twitter at ReadingPod, or you can head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We read all of them, and we even feature them on our newsletter, which, if you're not signed up for that, it's easy. Head over to RememberReading.com, where you can sign up to get episodes, quotes, and trivia delivered to your inbox every month. Remember Reading is produced by Irina Jorov and Stephanie Marudis of Cuvenda Media. I'm Lindsay Jacobson of HarperCollins. Thanks for listening. Until next time.